My name's Hans. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. If you're new, visiting with us, if you've been here a while, either way, we're in the book of Judges, and Judges uh, at times has odd words to pronounce. So, as you heard Zach, how do we say these? Even when you read them, or you read them in Hebrew, or you read them in English, and you go... Uh, so I learned from a pastor in Dallas, if you just pronounce them confidently, everyone assumes you know wh- what you're saying. And like, that's not how I pronounced it, but I guess he's right because he sounds right. So learn that and have stuck with it. So I might be pronouncing them differently than Zach, but I'm going to say it with a level of confidence that is just veneer. So we're in the book of Judges, and a part of that, sometimes we get really long sections because we wanted, we're really giving a judge a Sunday of the major judges. There's major judges, there's minor judges. If you know me, you know uh, I, I love campus ministry, college ministry, focus. Uh, many people come to faith or uh, get ignited in their faith around college, high school, college. It's not to say I don't like you if you're out of college age, but I like you less And the reason I love it, though, is because I really have seen people make transformative decisions for the Lord that have changed the trajectory of their life in campus ministry settings, where they have decided a career path, or they have decided not a career path, a different one, or they have decided to go into ministry and train more specifically. They've given up summers. They've given up lots. And I love it because it's really one of the only times where you get that much intensive focus. Uh, for those of you who are headed into college, I would just say don't waste it. Don't waste it because you can spend a lot of time giving energy to a career path you know, or studying whatever it might be and really do it so that you can uh, get rich or die trying and you end up having gone through it all and realized that it was the wrong pursuit. It's one of the reasons I love it. Because I always go, if you can just catch people for making a lot of stupid decisions early, it covers a multitude of sins. And anybody who came to faith later in life kind of gets it. They go, oh yeah, like it is. I, I wish I would have known the Lord when I was 18. I wish I would have known the Lord when I was 25. I'm glad I know him now. But there's just so much lostness in my background that makes it very difficult at times to follow uh, on the other side of it, in these settings, sometimes you see people who only look back at college ministry as like their, their mountaintop experience. And I find that incredibly unfortunate, too. They look back and go, this is when things, this is when I was really walking with Jesus. This is when life was really what it was like. And now, now I'm just living life. They, it's like, almost like they've gotten over it, like, like they, they've kind of moved past it. And it's interesting when I think of that trajectory of like, you know, accelerated growth to now I'm just living life and making it about me again. I see a lot of that in the life of Gideon. Now, if we talk about Gideon, the judge, we probably hear a few things. We maybe know a few things. What's something that you know about Gideon? If you're comfortable enough just saying it, what's something that you know? The fleece is absolutely, that's the one. Like, put the fleece down. I need a fleece. If you've ever heard the phrase, like, hey, this is my Gideon fleece, it's because Gideon really wasn't sure at that time of the Lord's character. So he flipped it. He would, he would, he would ask for the dew to be on the ground and not on the fleece. And then he was like, okay, just, just kidding. Like, you know, he'd flip it back and forth because he needed to see God's power over nature. And the gods that were being worshipped around him had power over nature. And he needed to see that the true God was more powerful than these false gods of 
a rule. That's absolutely one thing. We know the fleece story. Anybody know the army story? Like, like yeah, Gideon's army, it gets cut from like 32,000 to 300, you know, lickety split. Those are the things we know about Gideon. We actually often don't know the end of his life. That's what Zach read. The end of Gideon's life is tragic. You see this kind of arc of, of, of God calling him out of idolatry and him growing in his confidence in God's character and his assuredness that God's going to do what God said he was going to do. And then there's this flip, and this flip happens in many of us if we're not walking by faith. The flip is, I did it. I'm powerful. I accomplished this. It's because of my strength. It's because of my might. And you actually see that in the clues at the end that Zach read about them wanting to set him up as a king and him saying no. But then he has a bunch of kids with likely a bunch of women, which is very king-like behavior. And then with a concubine, he has a man a child named Abimelech, which stands for, my father is king. And so he rejects, rejects being a king only to act like a king. He rejects the Lord's rulership, and in so doing, he actually leads his own household and his own people astray. The Gideon story is really two parts, and we're going to be in the first part today, Judges 6, 7, and 8. The second part of the Gideon story is Abimelech, my father is king. And he is a ruthless, God-dishonoring, people-killing, selfish man. And you get to see the seeds that Gideon planted that sprouted up the life of Abimelech. And in fact... In the life of Abimelech, which we will see next week, you see what happens when you start to think it's you. When you start to think it's your confidence, it's your strength, it's your might, it's your power. That's what begins to happen. So this is how we'll break it down in these three movements. It's kind of moved by chapter, uh, but the first is we get to see God's presence Then we move to God's victory in chapter 7, and then we ultimately move to what is, I'll say our downfall, but uh, man's downfall, what happens when God's victory becomes something we boast in as our own doing. It's a dangerous place to be. I can feel it in ministry all the time. Oh, well, this happened because. This happened because we have the right people, or we have the right... Uh, ministries, or we have the right structure, or because I had this conversation, and you see this flip that begins to happen, which is God did this, and it flips to I did this. And I did this is never the right answer. So, what we'll see as we go through this, and like I said, if you have a paper Bible, it's going to be easier to follow along than a screen Bible, because I'm going to highlight different paragraphs going on throughout. And so a paper Bible is going to be easier, but anyone works. We're going to be in Judges chapters 6, 7, and 8, God's presence, God's victory, our downfall. And here's how it will start. The idea in chapter 6 is this, that God's presence turns a fearful man into a, I'll say, more confident commander. He's not a confident commander. He's a more confident commander. He's growing in his recognition of God's character. And you're going to see in Gideon's life this kind of smattering of tests and responses, test, response, test, response, where 
the Lord puts something before him, and he does it. He might do it even a little cowardly, but he still does it. And just like you with that, there's a little more kind of leveling up in faith. And then, and then there's another one. And even as you get into cha- you know, toward the end in chapter 7, the battle's about to begin, and he'll say, you know, I need you to go, go fight them. But if you're not ready, just go down into the camp and listen. And he hears a story, and the story emboldens him. And so we see this interchange between Gideon and the Lord in chapter 6. We'll start again with 7 through 10, the people's sin and the Lord's rebuke. This is interesting because what we've seen in the pattern of Judges is sin, oppression, cry out, response. And we have a little bit of difference here. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, this is verse 7, on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet, that's verse 7, in 8, to Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. This harkens back to the angel of the Lord who came early in the book of Judges, before the Judges began, that same kind of rebuke. Interesting that we see this this kind of adjustment where it's not just oppression cry out, now it's oppression prophet, somebody speaking about what has gone on. And you'll see this again, actually, there'll be oppression, and there's this kind of wrinkle, and it's what is God doing? He's reminding his people of what they were supposed to do, but he does it by reminding them of what he's done for them. I'm the Lord, I have driven people out, I gave you a command, but you have not obeyed. This is the the walk that faith is. We've talked about the faith walk, where we stand firm on the things God has said, and if we don't stand firm on the things God has said, we're standing firm on something else, maybe our own foundation, on Hans, the solid rock I stand, not very solid, I promise, rather cushiony, if you've ever used like a balance foam, that's like walking on my foundation. Like you can't, your ankle's going all over the place. And so God brings a rebuke to remind them. And then rather than just this immediate raising up, we actually zoom into an exchange between Gideon and between an angel. Now this is interesting because the Midianites, what would happen, and this is terrible, it actually is worse than just knowing there's people coming to war. The Midianites would come at harvest time, and take all of the crops. And so just imagine you're working the entire harvest or the entire planting season and growing season. You're working, and all you're doing is waiting for these people to come over the hills and take everything you've worked for, to take everything. Like, I would rather know there's a battle in an enemy than live, um, live kind of at peace for a while and then know that once it becomes time to harvest, we're going to have no food. So what the Israelites started to do is hide food. They would work in caves and they would hide what they would do so they could try and store up food for themselves so that when the oppressors came, they wouldn't have as much and they would have food for themselves. So they learned to live in fear. They've adjusted their whole system of life to live in fear and given themselves over to the consequences of their sin. Then this angel comes, and I love what the angel of the Lord does. He comes to Gideon, sat under the terebinth tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, 
and his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord said to him, <laughs> while he's hiding, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Like, it's time to be a warrior. And he's hiding. Gideon, Gideon knows that's not who he is. So he says, please, my Lord, the Lord is with us. Why has all of this happened? This is verse 13. Where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, could not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Notice how he makes this God's fault. The Lord has done this. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Now, I love this exchange because the Lord always speaks as to who we are, not as to necessarily how we feel. Gideon feels rather small and even says as much. Smallest clan, father's the smallest house, we got nothing, I'm in the wine press hiding, and you're saying things about me that don't feel true, and why has God abandoned us? neglecting that it's their sin and their disobedience that has led to the consequences that they are living in. So he has a small view of God. We'll know why very shortly. But he needs to know if this is true, if this is really the Lord speaking, if this is really the Lord promising, so this is a little test of faith. So he, I'm going to make some food for you, and this is going to be an offering. And then in verse 21, the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He's a little scared for his life. All these things have been spoken. Now there's a promise. You're going to strike the Midianites. He doesn't feel this way, endowed with all kinds of strength by God, but yet still he doesn't feel this way. And so now we have a test of faith. The first little move is let me make some food and let's see what happens. The angel of the Lord recognizes the offering. That's when Gideon knows this is more than just somebody speaking to me. But the Lord says to him in verse 25 that he has to take his father's idol and tear down an altar in his dad's house. Small signs of a great victory. Verse 25 that night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you've cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. 
Now, we might play into the fear there, but he still did what the Lord asked him to do. And we clearly know that doing it by night accomplished nothing because as the story goes, now everybody knows, they realize dad's altars have been cut down, which is a pretty bold move if you ask me. Like if I asked you guys, you kids, like what are the things your dad loves most? My kids would be like, his computer or his phone or his this or his that, like, like all these things. And it was like, go and burn them all tonight. Get rid of them all tonight. Make a statement that there's no other person to rely on, no other thing to rely on but the Lord. That's not a small thing for a son to do in his father's household. And he does it, and the people wake up, and they see things have changed, and they do the math, and they say, this must have been Gideon. So they want him dead. Why would they want him dead? Because the idolatry of the nation has gotten so serious and so dark and so confusing to the Israelite mind that up was down and left was right and dark was light, light was dark, all of those things, everything that was true was untrue and everything that was bad became good. And so a sacrifice to the God who saved Israel was seen as an affront of the gods of the town And it was time to kill the one worshiping what they thought was a false god. We're going to realize very quickly, it is not a false god. In fact, they're ready in verse 30, bring out your son that he may die, for he's broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah. But dad steps in. Maybe dad has an inkling of what's going on, or maybe he's just being a dad. But either way, he steps in in an interesting way. Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabal, or Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. So he has a name change. Also Gideon, also, I'll say Jerubbabal, That name change means let Baal contend. Let him fight. Let him fight for his own honor. And so what we're going to have in Gideon is this battle between God's ways and Baal's ways. Who's going to win this battle? Well, we know the answer. We're all here. It's 2023. We know the Lord. We know the story. We know the fleece. We know these things. But at the same time, We wonder if you're an Israelite living in a dark day, what's going to happen? So his son goes, let him contend, and Gideon is the one for whom uh, he will fight. He'll fight on the Lord's behalf. Now it's getting intense because it's harvest time. You look in verse 33, and all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east, they came together and they crossed the Jordan and they encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. He sounded a trumpet. The Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. And he has this question about a fleece. He needs the fleece wet and the ground dry because it's like he's mounting this gigantic army. He's still walking a little by sight, isn't he? He's mounting this gigantic army because how do you fight in man's ways but with force? 
You fight with force and not the Lord. And so he gets a gigantic army. He starts mounting people so he can go against the Midianites. And then he has to be really sure God's with him. So he asks the Lord for a sign. He needs the fleece wet and the ground dry. He needs the ground wet and then the fleece dry. And even in, the, in between, he's like, Lord, please don't hate me for this. Please don't hate me for this, but I just need one more. I need one more assurance. He's actually going to get another assurance. He keeps getting assurances. Why do this? The asking of a sign. I would guess almost everybody here has asked for a sign at some point in time. They've needed the Lord to show them something. They've needed some kind of confirmation. Some of us are like Homer Simpson and we go, Lord, if you would like me to do this, give me no sign. And then we step into that way. And other times people really find some way to confirm. So what is he needing here? What is he needing? He's needing to see that the one true God is more powerful than these small false gods of nature. He's asking God to give a show of force, of his own character. Something that Gideon can rely on. Something that says, you brought down the altar to Baal. You've brought, torn down the Asherah pole. But, not only that, I'm more powerful than what your family was worshiping. I have more strength. I have more might. I have control over where the dew will be. And that was one more little nudge of confidence. It's almost like, it's, it's like those times when, when God answers our prayers. And he answers some small prayer. We're like, Lord, I just need to have one good interaction today at work with somebody. I, I need that. I need to remember your good. And I, I would just, Lord, could you please demonstrate that you hear me? And then you have one good interaction at work. Now, it, it, it's like the Lord gives it. And then what happens? We start to go, well, that probably would have happened anyways. That probably would have happened anyways. That probably, like, like, you know, I have good, good interactions pretty often. I'm not sure it's because I prayed. Why? Because then we get all fatalistic and go, well, it's gonna, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And that's just not true. God demonstrates his loving care, even in small ways, to his children who are weak in faith. He shows his power and he shows his might and he shows his strength. A funny story, uh, we, we do Christmas cards, some of you guys know that, we do Christmas cards, and we didn't do this last year because there's too many of them and our hands get too tired, but we would write little notes on these Christmas cards to the people that we were sending them to. Now, you're just lucky to get one because we run out of time, and I, I had some friends who were missionaries overseas, and they were back. And like just working back, he was an engineer, and he was back working. And this was like, I've known this couple forever, like since I was in like high school, college. I've known them a really long time. Uh, did their wedding, love them to pieces, like think they're great. And I, on theirs, just randomly, just wrote, uh, you know, go back to, and I wrote the country that they serve in, go back. And he texted me not that long later, and he was like, did you know? that when you sent that, we were praying about whether or not we should go back. 
And I was like, I didn't, but I'm not surprised. Why? Because the Lord provides these little assurances all the time for us to remind us that he's to be trusted, to show his confidence and his character and his goodness. So no, I'm not trying to conjure up something. I had no like nudge, like, hey, you know, there's no voice from the Lord, like put that on their card. I'm just trying to encourage him to, you know, hey, if you're going to be about something, don't just be about work. Be about sharing Christ. You guys already love this stuff. Go do it. That's all. That was my motivation. It was like, it's four words. (laughs) Go back to blank. You know, like, go back. And they went back. (laughs) Like, it wasn't because of my note, but it was just God providing, I hear your prayers. I'm to be trusted. You can move. These little steps of faith. The world's story, God, is good, or God can't be trusted. He's not good. You must rely on your own strength. God's story is, hey, coward, you have what it takes. You have what it takes, not because of you, but because I'm with you. Not because of your own strength, but because of my strength. Not because of your power, but because of my power. So, yeah, the one who is threshing wheat in a wine press to hide from armies so that this doesn't get taken and your family can eat, you... You're going you're gonna to lead my people to a victory because this is what I do. He leads his people in victory, and he provides for them. And in fact, what you're going to begin to see as this moves is you're going to begin to see this victory coming in his way. That God's victory comes in his way. God's way is the way that the battle is won. Gideon's amassed this army. God's about to tell him that it's too big. He's trying to fight force with force. God's already told him it's going to happen. Gideon is a little different than Barak that we just heard from last week because Barak's like, I'm not sure. We see more interaction with Gideon where his faith is being challenged and tested and he's stepping in and stepping in and stepping in. But if you look at Judges chapter 7 where the battle comes and God's victory coming in his way, you see this reduction of force from 32,000 to 10,000 to 300 in verses 1 through 8 really begin to demonstrate this. But, it's, but the reason, the heart behind it is verse 2. The people with you are too many. There are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand saved me. Let's hear it again. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest they boast over me, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So all of this work that he did to send out messengers and amass an army and get everybody on board ready to fight, all of that work he did, God goes, you didn't need to do that. You didn't need that strength. You didn't need that show of force. We don't need 32,000 of you. And God reduces it. The first reduction makes a lot of sense. If anybody here is afraid, move on. So 22,000 leave. That, That group runs. They just get on out. Then there's this confusion between kneeling to drink and cupping with your hand and lapping like a dog. And there's all this language like, if you read it, it does get confusing because it almost sounds like he picked a certain group that did what the group he rejected did. 
the language gets confusing and different, you know, like, like even Bob shows on the commentary I'm using a lot for this. He's like, I honestly think that as this passage got transcribed over time, the wrong end of the sentence went to the verse below it, or the, like it, it attached up here. And everyone tries to come up with why. Were the, were the ones who kneeled and cupping to their hand, were they more ready to fight? Well, God just sent away cowards, so now the 10,000 are a little stronger. I think we can try and wordsmith this all day, but here's what we need to remember. We're trying to stack the deck against Israel. So Gideon has his forces reduced from 32,000 to 300. Now this is the way God fights. This is always the way God fights. The odds are against you. No one knows what's going to happen. The world thinks it's one. And God goes, just wait. So we now have a force of 300, and he's ready to fight. Everyone's been reduced. The cowards have gone home. Some who drank funny or not funny, they've left. Like, it's a very arbitrary way to remove people. The, the 10,000 that were left at least weren't afraid. So we know of the 300, they weren't afraid. Were they, were they better at fighting or worse at fighting? I don't really know, but you know what? It doesn't matter because that's not the way they win the victory. It actually has nothing to do with their skill or their awareness. It has to do with how well they blow a trumpet. So it's time to fight. And God goes, get up and go. But if you're still afraid, I'm going to give you another reminder of my goodness. So Gideon and his buddy go down to the camp. Verse 13 of chapter 7. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, the other fighter, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came up to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so the tent lay flat. His comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So, if you don't understand the scene, Gideon goes down so he can spy on the camp, and he overhears a Midianite retelling a dream he had to another warrior, and he said, I had this dream, like this nothing burger came into the camp and tipped us over, and the camp lay flat. He's like, I know what that is. Gideon's coming. So, through pagan people, Gideon is given confidence to do what he does because God's even preparing at least a couple of guys that this is not going to work well for them. Okay? But then you get weapons. You'd expect something spectacular, right? Give me chariots, give me horses, give me swords, give me something but listen to this. As soon as Gideon heard the telling, verse 15 of the dream and the interpretation, he worshiped. He responded. And he returned to the camp and he said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the men into 300 companies and put trumpets in their hands and all of them in empty, in empty jars with torches inside the jars. I get reducing the force from 32,000 to 300. That makes sense. Let's do that. Okay, now we're smaller, but like we got, we got the bosses around here. Like this is going to be real. And then Gideon's like, hey, it's time. Everybody get a trumpet and put a torch in a jar. 
What kind of fight is that? Now, if you're familiar with your Israelite history, it actually does sound like a different fight, doesn't it? Sounds like Jericho. Another battle that was fought without fighting. Another battle that was fought with the Lord's strength. Another battle that was fought in an unexpected way with uncommon weapons by a small group of people that led to the destruction of an enemy of the Lord. In fact, it's not in your slides, but if you look in 20, 21, 22, you get to see what begins to happen. The three companies blew trumpets and broke their jars. So the like, it's like, 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 what is that? They held in their left hand the torches, in their right hands the trumpets blew. This is how they're fighting the Midianites. Torches and trumpets. It's how we feel when we go into like life with prayer. It's like, is my really weapon only talking to God? That and his word, like that's what you get. And you're like, let's go, let's go. So they do this and they say, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. I don't even have swords. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled when they blew the 300 trumpets. The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshittah towards Zerah, Zerah and as, as far as the border of Abel Mohalah by Tabath. Wait a minute. So now, now imagine this. This is, the, this is the Lord's economy. Gideon's hiding, threshing out wheat. God goes, hey, you're going to destroy them. You got this. He's like, I don't have this. No, you do. Watch. Step number one, tear down your father's altar. That's going to demonstrate something. His dad goes, let Baal contend. He's got it. So now Gideon's called Jerubbabal. Sometimes. Sometimes he's called Gideon. All right, let's do that. He's massing his army. He goes, God, please just show me you're going to be strong. So he does the fleece thing. Then God goes, you have too many people. So we're going to go ahead and reduce your army down to 300. Okay, sounds good. Reduce down to 300. Then he gives him a dream to go, this is going to happen. Then all of a sudden with the 300 people, it's trumpets. And what happens? They go crazy inside the camp and start destroying each other. And then as they start destroying each other, the Midianites begin to flee. And much of the rest of chapter 7 is pursuing the princes, trying to work, pursuing the Midianite princes, putting them to death, bartering, arguing, explaining. All of these things are beginning to go on. And what ends up happening is the Midianites are destroyed. But remember how we talked about this kind of growth trajectory and then it, and then it falls and it's a tragic ending. We haven't gotten to the tragic ending yet. Before we get to the tragic ending, I want to remind us about how the Lord contends. Simple little thing. There's no power in it. You'll see him around. We talk about it from time to time. Uh, we have prayer lists. Live, work, and play prayer lists. And what we've asked many people to do, and we have many of your names, is just put the names of people in your life who don't know the Lord. Just list them. And we'll begin praying for these people. You pray for these people. You pray for their salvation. You pray God gives you an opportunity to talk to them about the Lord Jesus. You pray that God gives them uh, discomfort, bring them to their end, whatever it is. So we're just praying. Like, that's it. Praying for opportunities, praying for salvation, praying God moves. All that thing has been going on all year. 
and kids camp rolls around. And I'm like, who's that? Who's that kid? And it was like, oh, actually, that kid was on my kid's live, work, and playlist. And he wanted to start coming to church, like wanted to come see something. And so we invited them to this. Like, what? I started praying. This was earlier in the year. Uh, we ha- I was praying for one of our members. And then not that long later, they weren't here one Sunday. And it was because they went to her sister's church to celebrate her baptism. I'm like, is this the same one we were praying for? They're like, yep. When that happens, guess who has no strength? Me. Like, I don't have any strength. I can't make it done. I can try with all my might to push something along. And if the Lord's not in it, it doesn't move. Or at least doesn't move in the right ways. We have God's word. We have God's spirit. We have prayer. In a worldly sense, in an earthly sense, those weapons don't seem very powerful. In fact, they might often seem passive. But they're the most powerful things that we have at our disposal to see God's ways come about. We don't have man's wisdom. We don't show force. I was meeting with the principal at Schindelwolf recently. Just, just this week we were talking about it, going, how, how can we serve you guys this year? And he was like, he said something to this effect. He goes, you guys really punch above your weight class. And I was like, it's because it's not us punching. I, like, it, 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 it's like we're going to go after it, and our tiny little church will do whatever we can to invest in meaningful and significant ways in this school to see the Lord transform it. That's what we want. And so we'll do it again this coming year. What do you need? How can we serve? What can we do? And it's like, it's not like we're just sending a bunch of people en masse over to the school. We pray for the school. We bring them breakfast tacos. We talk to them. Like, like, like that, it, it's not this gigantic Master plan. Pray for it. Invest in the relationships. See what the Lord does. And he does stuff. He does stuff. Because God's victory comes in God's ways. God's victory comes in God's ways. Now we have to get to the end. Our downfall, man's downfall, comes... And God's victory produces self-confidence. And I'll just call it God-confidence. the word we use in my faith. When I'm confident in myself and I'm not confident in God, that's, that's when our downfall comes. Another word you could just slap right across it is pride. Something here is a silly thing. I, I, the, I, the math could always be a little off because you never know. But did you know that we finished the first six months of this year with a surplus just for the first six months, of $131.24. Like, $131.24. And <laughs> that's with a boatload of extra expenses that we did not anticipate having. We didn't anticipate a lightning strike. We didn't anticipate trees falling on stuff. We didn't anticipate things breaking we did a lot of stuff we didn't anticipate. And when Nicole sent the numbers, I did the math. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, 
we like we were we came we spent a chunk of money for our for who we are like like they, they, like we just had to because things were falling apart right gotta get it done one thirty one twenty four now I can do two things with that right I can go praise God or I can say well it's because it's because we planned it it's because we changed this it's because we did that. Because and once you do that, what begins to happen? You're sunk. You're sunk. Because you start to trust in yourself. Now the interplay, we'll talk about this years and years and years, between us walking by faith and the gifts God has given us, and the confidence that God has, the ways God has wired us is one thing. But it is still always God's work. God, we work hard in God's strength. For God's purposes. Otherwise, it's just nothing. Not too long ago, I was at camp. You guys know that. And I was walking around the camp. And we walked a ton. I think I said, like, Courtney and I walked like 50 miles that week. Just walked everywhere. Skipped everything. Walked everywhere. And I have this, you know, Fitbit. Because I'm getting old. And I need reminders to move. Um, And so... I'm walking up this hill. I, I purposely give myself an incredibly difficult path down to the dock and up the dock and down to the dock. And John's been to this dock. It's like, it's not a small way. Like you gotta, you gotta climb, right? Like it's the climb, like we sing. And so I'm climbing up that thing and my heart is pounding and I hate it. And I'm like, man, I'm, I am scoring so many points. And I look at this thing and lo and behold, I had turned off my heart rate monitor part. I walked for like an hour. I killed myself. And nothing happened. It's like it didn't even exist. Right? When we work hard for the Lord, it does one thing. When we work hard for ourselves, we don't even get the steps. Like we, don't even, we don't get any of the credit. Nor does the Lord. But when the Lord works through even our indiscretion, he still gets the glory for that. So if I have to pick between the Lord getting the glory for working in spite of me or the Lord getting the glory for working through me, I'm going to pick that one. I would rather work with him than against him. But what happens here with Gideon is he begins working against him. As chapter 8 begins, he has diplomacy with Ephraim. He says, your victory is great. They were hurt because they didn't get to fight in the right way. So he goes, no, 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 what you did is far better. And they calm down. He takes vengeance, and so now he's killing people who didn't, you know, who didn't help like he wanted them to. That doesn't sound like the Lord's victory. So diplomacy, now vengeance, and now he rejects the idea of being king, but becomes one. So let's go back to what we read this morning. Verse 22 of chapter 8, the men of Israel said, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. You've saved us. Now we need a king. You do it. He said, I will not, and my son will not. The Lord will do it. That sounds like a good answer. I won't, my son won't, the Lord will. But Gideon goes, well, I have one request. Let every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. Verse 25, they said, we'll do it. So he spread out a cloak, and every man did this, and there was a ton of gold and ornaments and pendants and garments Everything was there. And Gideon made an ephod, verse 27, which was like a priestly garment. He made an ephod to wear. And again, this was something 
priestly order would wear as a part of their priestly duties. So now I don't want to be a king, but he almost wants to be a priest. Just, I, just, I just need a trophy of this victory. And then look at verse 27. All of Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Why? I won't be your king, but just give me this. Give me this one thing. Some notoriety. And the moment he tried to gain notoriety with the spoils, with the ephod, claiming a role that was not his to claim, it led to his whole household being led astray in the same way his father was misleading his household. So the man who tore down his father's idols became the father who built idols in his house. The summary, verse 28, So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest. But it's very sad as we read these last few verses. Jerubbabel, let Baal contend, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Kings had a lot, especially worldly kings had a lot of kids. And you start to see this list. Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. Another thing that worldly kings do at that time. Lots of wives, lots of kids. I won't be your king, but I'm going to live like your king. I won't, I won't claim the status, but I'm going to act like I have it. Right? It's, it's, it's lips and hearts. People honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So he rejects the king, let the Lord rule over you, but just kidding, make me an ephod, and I'm going to start expanding my empire with kids and with wives. And his concubine who was in Shechem bore him a son, and he called his name, my father is king. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiazrites. From coward to commander, confident to self-confident, idol-worshiping, won't be your king, but will act like it, man. This is what happens when God's victory becomes claimed as ours. When God's work done God's way becomes, of course it happened, I was there. I don't want to be your king. I just need a little bit of glory, a little bit of credit. So I have three words. Word one, hope, hope in God. That's three words, but just hope is the word I'm saying, right? More words than three if you count them all. Hope in God, especially in dark times. That God is still working something out. When the land was full of idols and Gideon's dad had an idol, had idols, and he tore them down, and everyone wanted to kill him, Gideon, for tearing down his father's idols. And you just go, and I, I hear this a lot. I had this chat even this week. Is this the worst it's ever been? Answer, I was like, actually, no, it's not. I'm in Judges. If you want to see bad, read Judges. This is not the worst it's ever been, unless you're a nationalist. Then it is. Then you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. But this is not the worst it's ever been. Darkness is different, and the expressions of sin are gross and grotesque. But, no, it's not the worst it's ever been. But even in dark days, God is still working. So we can hope in God. 
We don't hope in our surroundings. We don't hope in the cultural climate. We don't hope in any of those things because they will fail us. They will mislead us. Hope in God, what he's working out, that his promises are sure, that his word can be relied upon, that he does what he said he will do. And in fact, Gideon goes, where are all these marvelous works and what does God give him but a marvelous work to demonstrate his power? Hope in God, next, step in faith. Walk by faith. Here's what I mean. As God demonstrates his power, trust him more, right? Grow, like, ask him, God, will you grow my faith? Will you, will you give me opportunities to step out? Let me see what happens when I share Christ with my neighbor. Let me see what happens if I purposefully engage with my coworker and invite her over for dinner with the family. Let me see what happens when I make this kind of move. Let me see what happens if I step out because I believe you're gonna be there. My buddy Dustin would have it, he'd say it this way in high school. Uh, you, you, you go out and you step out on a cliff and God builds more cliff. Just, there's just, you just go, oh, I didn't know I could walk there. I didn't know I could walk there. I didn't know I could walk there. Right? That is where life is its most enjoyed. Trusting God to do what he said he would do. And there are times with you and I where we have the weakness of getting, we go, God, I just need a reminder. I need some level of confidence. And you know what? He is faithful with a humble posture to provide those little reminders that he is good. You ever had them? I had stories. Maybe one day I'm struggling and all of a sudden out of nowhere I get encouragement that I was not expecting. Not sure how I'm going to pay a bill and we get money we weren't expecting. I mean, there's these little things. I'm not saying this is going to happen for everybody. I can either go, I knew that was going to happen. This is how it works. Or I can go, thank you, Lord, for providing in ways I did not expect, I did not anticipate, I did not understand. That walk by faith. And where he has spoken, step. And then finally, and this is important too, stay near to him. And I say in peacetime, but that becomes when it's really easy. When you go, hey, how's your, how's your life? How's your family? And you just go, everything's great right now. That can be one of the easiest times to forget the Lord's goodness. Everything's good. Money in the bank, food in our bellies, family's great. They've been healthy for a long time. I'm really glad for that. Everything seems to be working. It becomes the easiest time to get arrogant and go, I did this. And that is actually, if you follow Gideon's trajectory, once the battle was over, the idolatry began. It wasn't happening in the battle. It happened when the battle was done. How do you stay near in peacetime? You read God's word. You enjoy the fellowship of God's people. You remind yourself of what God has promised. And you engage with him regularly. Praising him for his goodness and his character. So that in those moments where he speaks in confidence of who he is and what he's done, we can see and go, yes, I I know you. You are good. You do save. I'm not surprised. You have power. As we'll see next week, Gideon's story is tragic, and it actually results in perhaps one of the most brutal eras of the judges in his son, where my father as king tries to take over the land 
It's a warning for us to stay near to our gracious and good God. Will you guys pray with me?